And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is December 27th, 361st day of the year. Only uh, four days remain till the year's over with. Now, on the... Well... Holidays and observances. It is National Leftover Day. Visit the Zoo Day. Make Cutout Snowflakes Day. National Fruitcake Day. So that fruitcake you got uh, for Christmas, it's got its own day. It's Kwanzaa, which is from Tuesday, December 26th until Monday, January 1st. Festival of the Winter Walks, Blue Christmas, which celebrates uh, first responders. Out of Sight Month, or excuse me, Gift of Sight Month, Operation Santa Paws. Worldwide Food Service Safety Month, National Right of Business Plan Month, National Tie Month, National Pair Month, and Universal Human Rights Month. Now, all that having been said, to our little history segment. In 537 A.D., the second Hagia Sophia in Constantinople is consecrated. 1512, the Spanish crown issues the laws of Burgos, governing the conduct of settlers with regard to Native Americans in the New World. Now, the laws of Burgos... It was the first codified set of laws governing the behavior of Spaniards in the Americas, particularly in regard to indigenous people in America, uh, primarily the native Caribbean Indians. They forbid slavery of the indigenous people and endorsed their conversion to Catholicism. The laws were created following the conquest and Spanish colonization of the Americas and the West Indies, where the common law of Castile wasn't fully applicable. Now, the scope of the laws was originally restricted to the island of Hispaniola, but later extended to the islands of Puerto Rico and Santiago. Santiago, of course, was later renamed Jamaica. Uh, these laws authorized and legalized the colonial practice creating the Comuniendas, where Indians were grouped together to work under a colonial head of the estate for a salary and limited the size of these establishments to 40 to 50 people. Excuse me, 40 to 150 people. They also established a minutely regulated regime of work, pay, provisioning, living quarters, and diet. Women more than four months pregnant were exempted from heavy labor. Up to that point in time, anything goes. 1521, the Zwickau prophets arrived in Wittenberg, disturbing the peace and preaching the apocalypse. The uh, Zwickau prophets... uh, were three men of the Radical Reformation form from uh, Zwickau and the electorate of Saxony in the Holy Roman Empire who were possibly involved in, in the, in the disturbance nearby Wittenberg and its involving Reformation in 1522. These three men, Nicholas Storch, Thomas Deserell, and Marcus Stubner, began their movement in Zwickau. Though these three names were favored in recent scholarship, others have been suggested um, the relationship of the Zwickau prophets to the Anabaptist movement has been variously interpreted. Now, the uh, Anabaptist movement, for those that are not familiar, is a Christian movement that traces its origins to the Radical Reformation. They formulated their beliefs in a confession of faith called the Slytham Confession. The... Um, They've been viewed as a precursory foundation of Anabaptism before the rise of the Swiss Brethren in 1525. is unrelated to the movement except for the influence on the Thomas Munzer being a dual foundation with the Swiss Brethren to form a composite movement of Anabaptism. And regardless of the exact relationship to Anabaptism, the Zwickau prophets presented a 
radical alternative to Lutheran mainstream Protestantism is demonstrated in their involvement in all the disturbances that took place in Wittenberg. <coughs> Excuse me. I can't stop coughing. 1655, Second Northern War, the Deluge. Monks at the Jasna Gora Monastery in Swiss Katawa successful in fending off a month-long siege. 1657, the Fleshing Remonstrance uh, articulates for the first time in North American history that uh, freedom of religion is a fundamental right. 1703, Portugal and England signed the Methune Treaty, which allows Portugal to export wines to England on favorable trade terms. 1814, during the War of 1812, the destruction of the schooner USS Carolina brings to an end Commodore Daniel Patterson's makeshift fleet, which fought a series of delaying actions that contributed to Andrew Jackson's victory at the Battle of New Orleans. 1831, Charles Darwin embarks on his journey aboard the HMS Beagle, during which he'll begin to formulate his theory of evolution, which has never been proven, I might add. 1836, the worst ever avalanche in England occurs at Lewes, Sussex, killing eight people. 1845, ether aesthetic is used for childbirth for the first time by Dr. Crawford Long in Jefferson, Georgia. Also in 1845, having coined the phrase Manifest Destiny, the previous July, journalist John L. O'Sullivan argued in his newspaper, New York Morning News, the U.S. had the right to claim the entire Oregon country. 1911, Jana Ganamana, the national anthem of India, is first sung in Calcutta's session of the Indian National Congress. In 1918, the Great Poland Uprising against the Germans begins. Also in 1918, Ukrainian War of Independence. The Revolutionary Insurgent Army of Ukraine occupies Ekaterinoslav and seizes seven airplanes from the UPRAF, establishing an insurgent air fleet. In 1922, Japanese aircraft carrier Hosho becomes the first purpose-built aircraft carrier to be commissioned in the world. 1927, Kern and Hammerstein's musical play Showboat. Considered to be the first true American musical play opens at the Ziegfeld Theater on Broadway. 1929, Soviet General Secretary Joseph Stalin orders the liquidation of the Kulaks as a class. 1932, Radio City Music Hall, Show Place in a Nation, opens in New York City. 1935, Regina Jonas is ordained as the first female rabbi in the history of Judaism. 1939, a 7.8 Erzincan earthquake shakes eastern Turkey with a maximum Michaeli intensity of 11, which is considered extreme. At least 32,700 people were killed. 1939, Winter War. Finland holds off a Soviet attack in the Battle of Kalha. 1945, the International Monetary Fund is created with the signing of an agreement between 29 nations. 1949, Indonesian National Revolution. Netherlands officially recognizes Indonesian independence. That's the end of the Dutch East Indies. 1966, the Cave of Swallows, the largest known cave shaft in the world, is discovered in Akishman, San Luis Potosi, Mexico. 1968, Apollo program. Apollo 8 splashes down the Pacific Ocean, ending the first orbital crewed mission to the moon. Also in 68, North Central Airlines Flight 458 crashes at O'Hare International Airport, kills 28 people. 1978, Spain becomes a democracy after 40 years of fascist dictatorship. 1983, Pope John Paul II visits Mehmet Ali Aga in uh, Ribabiba's prison and personally forgives him for the 1981 attack on him in St. Peter's Square. 1985, Palestinian guerrillas kill 18 people inside the airports of Rome, Italy, and Vienna, Austria. 1989, the Romanian Revolution concludes as the last minor street confrontations and stray shootings abruptly end in the country's capital of Bucharest. 1991, Scandinavian Airlines System Flight 751 crashes in Gadrora in 
Nortelli municipality in uh, Sweden, injuring uh, 92 people. 1996, Taliban forces retake the strategic Bagram airfield, which solidifies their buffer zone around Kabul, Afghanistan. 1997, Protestant paramilitary leader Billy Wright's assassinated in Northern Ireland. 2002, two trunk bombs killed 72 and wound 200 at the pro-Moscow headquarters of the Chechen government in Grozny, Chechnya, uh, Russia. 2004, radiation from an explosion on the Magnetar SGR 1806-20 reaches Earth. It's the brightest extrasolar event known to have been witnessed on the planet. 2007, former Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto was assassinated in a shooting incident. Also in 2007, riots erupt in Mombasa, Kenya, after Mwai Kabaki is declared the winner of the presidential election, triggered a political, economic, and humanitarian crisis. 2008, Operation Cast Lead, Israel launches three-week operation in Gaza. 2009, Iranian election protest on the day of the Asher and Tehran Iran government security forces fire on demonstrators. 2019, Beck Air Flight 2100 crashes during takeoff from Almaty International Airport in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Killed 13 people. Well, you know, it's interesting to note that there have been many, many, um, revolts and uprisings and whatever you want to call them in the name of religion. And you have to wonder if in fact how this carrying on about this God, that God, and the other God are uh, true, why all the death and destruction? This doesn't make sense. Well, we're going to be talking about mysterious disappearances. Now, every year, about 100,000 people vanish in this country alone. There's no rhyme or reason. They're just here one minute and gone the next. And it does make you wonder, where are they going? For example, Trevor Engel wanted to make a career change. He was a 28-year-old, experienced, long-haul trucker. He was disillusioned with all the time he spent on the road. He had married, had a small child. He wanted to spend more time with his family. So he decided to find a job to allow him to sleep in his own bed every night. Hadn't quite figured out exactly what it was he wanted to do, but he knew he didn't want to be a trucker anymore. So when he left his home in Coal Lake, Alberta, Canada, September 20th in the year 2000, he make a scheduled delivery to Los Angeles, he told his wife he hoped it'd be one of his last journeys as a trucker. Well, about noon on September 20th, I'm sorry, about noon upon his arrival at the meat packing plant near Calgary to pick up the load of beef that he'd be driving to Los Angeles, he'd prepared for the 25-hour drive from Canada to California. He'd made it many times over the years, so he was extremely familiar with the route. Having practically no sleep, he'd usually try to complete the trip as quickly as possible. Arrived in L.A. without incident and unloaded a shipment of beef, picked up a load of bananas and had to be driven back to Calgary after he secured a trailer full of bananas. <laughs> Excuse me. He got back on the Interstate 15 and headed north. Reached the California-Nevada border about four hours later and decided to make a pit stop at a place I'm somewhat familiar with, Whiskey Pete's Hotel and Casino in Prim, Nevada. No secret among his friends and family, he enjoyed drinking and gambling, but he spent so much of his time on the road, he didn't get a chance of doing it that often. And he had discovered Whiskey Pete's when he first started driving between Calgary and Los Angeles. And he would always stop on there on his way back to Cal Calgary. First stop at Prim was a gas station, fueled up his truck, headed for the large parking lot at Whiskey Pete's where he parked his 18-wheeler and 
alongside a lot of others and already parked there. With its prime location off Interstate 15, Whiskey Peach was a favorite haunt for many long-haul truckers. And I remember my few trips there. Um, parking lot was usually full of trucks. About 10 in the morning on September 22nd, he talked to one of his company dispatchers while he was in Prim. Told him he'd be resting there for a while before continuing the journey back to Calgary. Then he called his wife, told her he hadn't gotten any sleep during his trip, and she encouraged him to rest before attempting that drive back to Canada. He also mentioned he had one more Calgary to Los Angeles trip scheduled, and then he planned to quit trucking for good. He's going to be a homebody. After hanging up with his wife, his exact movements are not really clear. Both his company dispatcher and his wife assume he's going to try and get some sleep inside his truck, but it appears he had some other plans. A number of witnesses recall seeing him inside Whiskey Pete's uh, gambling uh, casino. Gambling? Dispatcher and his company tried to successfully get in touch with him several times throughout the afternoon and the evening, and as each hour passed, they became increasingly more concerned. And by the following morning, they were certain it was some kind of problem. Well, they accessed the truck's GPS system, and it showed it was still sitting in Prim, Nevada. It hadn't moved in nearly 24 hours. So whatever happened, happened in the casino. Well, the trucking company called his wife and parents, and they hadn't heard from him since the previous day. So at that point, his company called the Calgary Police Service and reported him missing. Now, it's not clear if the police in Canada actually did anything to attempt to locate him, and doesn't appear the authorities in Nevada were made aware of the fact he had a potentially missing person in their jurisdiction. Well, three days after he was reported missing, some other truck drivers from his company located his truck in the Whiskey Peach parking lot. All his personal belongings were in the cab of the truck, including his wallet. And although there was no cash in his wallet, his driver's license and credit cards were still there. A load of bananas in his trailer appeared to be undisturbed, although the refrigerator is no longer running. They run out of fuel. Well, his wife and parents immediately flew to Nevada to join in the search. They weren't sure what to think about his sudden disappearance. They all knew how disillusioned he'd become with his job and assumed that it probably had something to do with his silence. But they didn't believe he could have gone far. They assumed he'd find him in the casino gambling away his frustrations. Well, a thorough search of Whiskey Peach revealed no sign of Trevor, but his family wasn't that concerned. There were three casinos in Prem, all connected by a monorail system. And it is possible that uh, Trevor decided to try his look at one of the other two casinos. And his wife and parents figured he'd eventually run out of money and go back to his truck, so they resigned himself to waiting. Yeah, his family began showing uh, Trevor's picture to whis employees at Whiskey Pete's, hopeful one of them might recall seeing him and Although several people thought he looked familiar, they, also, they saw so many people on the casino floor every day they couldn't be sure. One waitress at the casino's cafe was certain she'd waited on Trevor. She recalled him eating at the cafe the morning of the 23rd, about 24 hours after he last spoke to his wife. He'd wanted a bowl of oatmeal. He'd stu and stood out to the waitress because he used pocket chains to pay his bill and leave a tip. Yeah, while searching through all the other casinos and restaurants in the area, his family is forced to confront the fact that it appeared he had left the area. Other than a few people who believed they'd seen him on the 22nd and 23rd, there were no other sightings. If he left Prem on the 23rd, he could be anywhere by the time his truck is located. Well, since Teresa, and that was his wife, and Trevor shared a joint bank account, uh, Teresa uh, was able to access Trevor's banking records. Surprised to see he'd used his debit card to make nearly a dozen cash withdrawals while he was in Prim. Made the first cash withdrawal shortly after he spoke to him on the 22nd. The last about 4 p.m. on the 20, 4 a.m. on the 23rd. He had taken his entire paycheck, presumably for gambling, and it's possible he had lost it all. He's now wandering around somewhere, broke and despondent. Well, his wife and mother started calling all the hospitals and medical clinics in the area. But none of them recall seeing anybody matching his description. They also checked the Salvation Army in case Trevor sought shelter there, but came up empty. He appeared to have vanished into thin air. Well, desperate by this time, the family rented a car and spent days driving around looking for Trevor. They couldn't find anybody who'd seen him. 
the police believed that Trevor had voluntarily disappeared. Noted he was uh, unhappy with his life in Canada and thought he might have wanted to make a fresh start in America. And his discontent was certainly not a secret. Everybody who knew him was aware of the fact he wanted to quit his job. He'd been seeing a psychologist who had been hired by his employer in an attempt to get his life sorted out. But he just remained still unsure about his plans for the future. Although Trevor had been unhappy with his career, there was nothing to suggest his marriage was failing. He and Teresa had been high school sweethearts, and both of them had enjoyed, been overjoyed when their son was born two years earlier. Trevor loved being a father. His main reason for wanting to quit his job was so he could spend more time at home with his wife and son. And nobody in the family believed he'd have voluntarily walked away from Teresa and his child. Well, Trevor's parents noted Trevor had been very open about his growing hatred of trucking. No secret he hoped to make a career change. He had spoken to his parents about the subject on numerous occasions, but never expressed any discontent with his home life. So they didn't believe he'd suddenly decided to make a new life for himself in the States. And although Trevor's family didn't believe he'd voluntarily walked away from him to start a new life, they did worry he might have committed suicide or experienced some sort of mental breakdown. And Teresa noted Trevor didn't always make the best decisions. He tended to be somewhat spontaneous, doing things without thinking about the long-term consequences. He may have suddenly realized he'd gambled away all his money and become depressed. If he'd wandered off into the desert, his chances of survivor were slim. Searches of the area around Prim were conducted, but nothing was found. It's also possible he might have been a victim of foul play. And although details are somewhat sketchy, investigators spoke of one waitress who claimed to have seen a man they believed with Trevor laying in the parking lot of Whiskey Pete's. They claimed the man appeared sick or hurt, and he appeared disoriented and was crutching his stomach and pleading for help. Now, you have to ask yourself why witnesses didn't attempt to help him, but that's not clear. Well, Trevor's family was devastated by his disappearance. The trucking company he worked for, though helpful at first, eventually decided they wanted nothing more to do with the situation. They told Trevor's parents that Trevor appeared to have a gambling problem and there was nothing else they could do. So his parents continued to search for him on their own and prayed he was still alive. Teresa searched desperately for her husband for months before she finally came to terms with the fact he's like they're not going to return. And although she didn't want to believe he willingly abandoned her, she remains hopeful he's still alive somewhere. She remarried a few years after Trevor's disappearance, but kept the same phone number, so he'll have some way to contact her if he ever resurfaces. Well, he was 28 when he disappeared in September of 2000. He'd be, what, 51 now? Um... Strange things like this have a tendency to play themselves out. But if the body, assuming he's dead, was never found, we probably never know what happened. Well, let's turn to Tamara Bradley. Left work at 3.30 p.m. on a Friday, September 30, 1994. She was prepared for a weekend of house hunting company she worked for, Federal Foam Technologies, was going to be relocating from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Wisconsin, and uh, she planned to sell the Blaine, Minnesota house she shared with her five-year-old son and move across the Wisconsin border. She dropped her son off with her ex-husband that morning, and she had several homes she wanted to look at before she was due to pick him up on Saturday e- uh, Sunday evening. As she left work, told her co-workers she'd see him on Monday and left him let him know she'd, she'd seen any house she liked. 30-year-old got in her car, tossed her paycheck on the dashboard, and pulled out of the parking lot. Co-worker saw her leave and noticed she'd headed north on Washington Street, and that was the, the way she uh, would normally go to get to her home in Blaine. Well, no one from Tamara's family spoke to her that weekend, but they weren't all that concerned. They knew she had planned to look at some houses and assumed she was simply busy. Her ex-husband was the first one to sound the alarm. He knew something had to be wrong when she didn't show up on Sunday evening to pick up her son. And when he wasn't able to reach her, he called her sister Wendy to see if she'd heard from her. And once it became clear nobody had been in contact with her since Friday afternoon, the family started to get worried. They drove to her home, but it was dark and empty. Her car wasn't in the driveway. Her mail from both Friday and Saturday was still in her box. 
Appears she hadn't been back to her home since leaving it Friday morning. And although her family was concerned about her whereabouts, she was an adult and they didn't want to overreact. And although it was completely out of character for her to go anywhere without checking in with somebody, they knew she planned to look at houses across the state line. was possible she'd ended up staying overnight in Wisconsin for some reason. So they decided to wait and see if she showed up for work the following morning. Monday morning came, and her family waited anxiously to see if she arrived at Federal Foam Technology. She was a reliable employee and was always punctual. On that day, though, her desk was empty, and she didn't call the office to explain her absence. When the workday ended without any word from her, her family could no longer deny something was terribly wrong, and they called the police and reported her as missing. Well, initially, the police didn't appear to be too concerned. They assumed she simply needed a break and decided to go away for a while. Well, it didn't take all that long before they realized this likely was not the case. Early on Monday morning, her car had been found in a no-parking zone in downtown Minneapolis. And since she hadn't yet been reported missing at the time her car was found, authorities had no way to know the significance of their find, and the car was towed to the city's impound lot. Well, once they realized the connection, investigators examined the car to see if it contained any clues about her, where she might be. Um... The car had been left on uh, Hawthorne Avenue near a Greyhound bus station with the key still in ignition. Nothing appeared to be missing from the car. Two of her paychecks and uncashed child support check were sitting untouched on the dashboard. No signs there was any kind of struggle taking place in or around the car, but the driver's seat had been pushed all the way back. And Tamara, who was only five foot four, would never have been able to drive the car with the seat in that position. And although they found nothing in the car to indicate foul play had taken place, investigators didn't believe Tamara had voluntarily disappeared. She was extremely close with her family, had a good relationship with her ex-husband, was completely devoted to her young son. And as far as anybody knew, she hadn't been dating anybody at the time, been looking forward to buying a new home. And as she left two uncashed paychecks, as well as the child support check in the car and her bank account hadn't been touched, that did raise some interesting questions. Detectives interviewed dozens of people who knew Tamara, but none of them had been able to offer any insight into her disappearance. Coker's reported she had been her usual cheerful self when she left work on Friday. Seemed excited about the prospect of looking at houses and giving no indication anything had been bothering her. Well, she was one of six children and was very close to her siblings. Had a group of close friends who would gather often for a drink or to play darts, and they were certain she would have confided in them if she had been having any kind of personal trouble. All of them were adamant that even if she wanted to get away for a while, she never left her son behind. If she planned to go anywhere, she would have taken him with her. Well, investigators eventually reached out to the public for help in locating her, but unsuccessful in developing any leads. No tips came in, no potential sightings of Tamara were made. Case quickly went cold. By February 1995, been shelled with the rest of the department's inactive files. Remained untouched for more than 10 years. Well, in July 2009, Minneapolis police got a tip that Tamara might be a possible match for an unidentified body had been found in Wyandotte County, Kansas, on October 1999. And although some of Tamara's physical traits did match the Kansas Jane Doe, it was eventually determined that unidentified body was not Tamara's. There have been no new leads in her case since 2009. The family's resigned her, themselves to the fact she's in all likelihood dead. Their sister Wendy had gained custody of Tamara's son after she disappeared. And although the family's tried to keep Tamara's memory alive, her son was so young when she vanished, she has virtually no memories of his mother. The family's conducted numerous physical searches for her over the years, and they hope one day they'll learn what happened to her and get some measure of closure. Well, she was 30 years old when she went missing from Blaine, Minnesota in 1994. Hazel eyes, brown hair, 5 feet 4 inches tall, and at the time of her disappearance, she weighed 135 pounds. Last seen wearing blue jeans, a dark-colored T-shirt, a dark-colored ski jacket, and sneakers. She also had a partial dental plate. But ab absolutely, she vanished into thin air. Let's go to... Turned from Tamara to Sarah Bushland. She had been in a good mood when she left her Spring Lake, Wisconsin home the morning of Wednesday, April 3rd, 1996. It was the last day of classes before spring break. It was also the 15-year-old's first day of freedom after being grounded for several weeks. 
One of her stepbrothers dropped off at a friend's house in Spooner, Wisconsin that morning, and the two of them walked to Spooner High School together. Well, the first half of the school day passed by quickly. Her boyfriend, Travis Lane, picked her up at lunchtime, and the two of them went out to eat. After lunch, Travis dropped her back off at school. She went to afternoon classes. Well, she intended to walk back to her friend's house uh, once the school day ended, as the two of them planned on returning to the school together later in that evening for an event to be held there. By the end of the day, though, she had changed her mind, told her friends she needed to return to her own home first, and asked several people to give her a ride. Her home was located on the outskirts of the rural community of Spooner. When she was unable to find anybody willing to drive her there, she decided to take the school bus. Her bus ride home usually took about 40 minutes. She spent the time chatting with several of the students on the bus. And one of them noted there was a dark pickup truck that appeared to be following the bus. She, the witness, said uh, it belonged to a man that Sarah used to date. Well, she got off at her usual bus stop located near the bottom of the gravel driveway that led up to her home. Several witnesses saw the dark-colored pickup truck pull into Sarah's driveway, and from Sarah's body language, it was clear that she didn't know the driver. And although witnesses saw Sarah approach the driver and talk to him, it's unclear if she actually got into the truck with him or not. A couple of witnesses thought she did climb into the truck, and another recalls seeing Sarah speak with the driver, but nothing else. The only thing certain is that Sarah was never seen again. The truck was seen backing out of Sarah's driveway as the bus pulled away. One witness said the truck headed north in the direction of Trago, and another claimed it went south. Neither witnesses could tell if Sarah was in the truck or not, and she may have started a 100-yard walk up the driveway to her home. Well, she got off the bus at 4 p.m. The only person who had been home at that time was her 20-year-old stepbrother, David. Her mother, Marie, had uh, gone to town for a funeral and planned on spending the night in Chippewa Falls while her stepfather, Jim Lambert, was visiting a friend in Minnesota. Well, Sarah's stepbrother noticed Sarah didn't arrive home from school and called his father in Minnesota about 4.30 that afternoon to report that Sarah wasn't home. It's unclear if he thought she was still grounded or not since Sarah had initially planned to go to a friend's house after school. There's no reason for anyone to expect her to be home. Well, Jim called his wife in Chippewa Falls and told her Sarah apparently hadn't returned home from school. Unsure what was going on, Marie immediately made the drive back to Spooner, got there about 6.20 in the, in the evening, began calling around to some of Sarah's friends, but none of them had seen her since they left school. At 8 p.m., Marie began driving around to various places where she thought Sarah might be. Went to the home where Sarah had been dropped off that morning as well as Travis's apartment, but Sarah wasn't in either, either location. Travis told Marie he'd eaten lunch with Sarah, but hadn't seen her since she dropped her off back at school. And several of Sarah's classmates confirmed Sarah had returned to school after lunch, but had then taken the bus home. Marie finally went home and spent a sleepless night wondering where her daughter might be. Well, according to Jim, he returned from Minnesota early the next afternoon, and he and Marie then drove to the Spooner Police Station and reported Sarah missing. During the initial reports, it appears the couple believed Sarah had simply run away, since they didn't seem particularly disturbed. Police did little to look for her. Her disappearance got no publicity at all, and a lot of her classmates weren't even aware of the fact that she was missing over the two weeks after she was last seen. Curiously, Marie didn't bother to call Sarah's father to tell him that his daughter was missing. Mike Bushland learned of her disappearance a few days later when his former mother-in-law called him. And from the start, he was convinced Sarah wasn't a runaway. She hadn't taken any of her belongings. All her clothing, makeup, and hair products were left behind. And what teenage girl leaves all that? She'd only been living in Spooner since December 1994, and prior to that, she'd been living in Colorado with her father and older sister, Leslie. Sisters were only 18 months apart in age and always been close, and their parents, who divorced in 1984, shared joint custody of the girls for much of their childhood. When Mike relocated to Colorado in 1990, both girls opted to move with him. Well, Mike did everything he could to give his daughters a stable home life, and things seemed to be going well. And as the sisters entered their teenage years, they started to act out a little. Leslie got a thrill out of shoplifting, though she never really took anything of value, and Sarah decided to try her hand at it, but she wasn't as discreet about it. In November 1994, she was arrested after being caught shoplifting at a local mall. Well, Mike, of course, was understandably upset when he learned of his daughter's new hobby, and he grounded both of them. 
Sarah, in typical teenage fashion, reacted with anger and decided she didn't want to live with her father anymore. Wanted to go live with her mother and stepfather in Wisconsin. Mike agreed and settled rough Colorado the following month. Jim and Marie Lambert lived on a 65-acre property along Spring Lake in Spooner, Wisconsin. Their home had burned down in 1990, and rather than rebuild it, they converted their two-story garage into a home. At the time Sarah moved in with them, two of Jim's sons were living there also. Jim and Marie were seldom home. This created a kind of unstructured environment that Sarah had been craving since she left her father's house. But it did come at a price. There were allegations of sexual abuse and tension between Sarah and her stepbrothers, and no charges ever brought, though, and it's un- unclear exactly what went on inside the Spooner house. And although Sarah was rarely supervised, she had very little privacy as her bedroom lacked a door and doubled as Jim's office. Well, Sarah was known for her happy and outgoing personality and never had a problem making friends. When she moved to Spooner, though, she started hanging out with a group of people who were much older than she was. She was only 15 years old at the time she started dating Travis, and he was 21 at the time. Jim and Marie weren't happy about this, and they tried to tell Sarah she wasn't allowed to date till she turned 16, but Sarah continued to see Travis anyway. Like most teenage girls, Sarah kept a diary. Although she only wrote in it sporadically, she did go into detail about some of the tensions she felt with her stepfather and stepbrothers, as well as general relationship problems. March of 1996, Jim found and read her diary, and he was angry about some of the things she'd written and grounded her as a result. It's unclear exactly what angered him, though the fact that Sarah was apparently still dating Travis was probably a factor. Sarah was only allowed to leave the house to go to school or school-related activities, and her punishment was due to end the day she went missing. Well, Sarah moved to Spooner because she'd been angry when her stepfather grounded when her father grounded her. Once her stepfather did it, she seemed to realize that life with her father had been pretty good. Before she went missing, she told her grandmother she was thinking of moving back in with her father and sister. Well, the exact circumstances surrounding Sarah's disappearance had never been fully established. As she was trying to find a ride home from school that day, she told one of her friends she was afraid her stepfather would read her diary again, and he noted if he read it, the, the most recent entry, she'd likely ground her again. She mentioned she wanted to get home before this could happen. Jim was supposed to be out of town on a planned overnight trip that day, meaning there was no risk of him finding or reading the diary, and it is possible she's worried one of her stepbrothers might find it and reveal its contents to her stepfathers, but her exact thoughts are really unknown. And although her father and older sister were convinced she didn't run away from home, police uh, latched on to the runaway theory. And when the police come up with a theory, you can't get their mind to change no matter what you do. As a result, no real investigation was conducted. Mike was upset with the way the case was handled, noting that no one from the sheriff's office had bothered to contact him and Sarah had been missing for more than a year. It's clear to him that never bothered to take even a cursory look at her disappearance, let alone conduct an actual investigation. Well, Marie held on to the hope her daughter decided to voluntarily disappear and believed that she might return after her 18th birthday. Well, the day came and went without any word from Sarah, and her family admitted it was getting harder to stay positive. Well, July 1999, the Washburn County Sheriff's Office arrived at Jim and Marie's home in Spooner and conducted their first physical search for Sarah. And although they declined to name anyone of the family as a suspect or even a person of interest, they combed through a trash dump that was located on the property. They said they didn't find anything related to Sarah's disappearance. In August of 2000, law enforcement conducted a second search on the Lambert property. This time, armed with a search warrant, they dragged Spring Lake and searched through several other areas on the property, but once again, they found nothing and left. The fact that Washburn County Sheriff's Office seemed to be concentrating their search efforts around Sarah's home was a subject of much speculation, but officials refused to comment on the case. The fact they didn't seem too worried about finding the dark-colored pickup truck seen on the first day Sarah disappeared seemed to indicate they had discarded it as a lead. They appeared to believe Sarah had arrived that day and met her fate in her own home. After the second search of Lambert property, investigation into Sarah's disappearance seemed to stall. It be more than ten years before another physical search would take place. Well, by the time Sarah had been missing for five years, law enforcement admitted it appeared her disappearance had not been voluntary. Although they had no proof that foul play had taken place, they noted they had no reason to believe Sarah was still alive. They received few leads about the case, likely since there was no publicity and a few people seemed to know she was missing, but 
They believed there were people living in the Spooner area who knew exactly what happened to the teenager. And although her case was always considered to be an active investigation, no progress was made on it for years. 2013, police renewed their efforts at finding Sarah. They started uh, with yet another search of the Lambert property in May of 2013. More than 70 investigators spent two days scouring the entire property, including the home and all outbuildings. Cadaver dogs were brought in to assist, and they reacted to the smell of decomposition in several different areas. Well, despite this extensive search, officials once again left out any clues about what might have happened to Sarah. Now, both Jim and Marie died in 2017. The Washburn County Sheriff's Office conducted a forced search of their property a week after Jim died. Once again, searches failed to find any evidence related to Sarah's disappearance. The truck that was seen in Sarah's driveway on the day she went missing has never been identified. One witness thought it looked like a truck belonging to the father of Sarah's boyfriend. Another recognized it as belonging to a man Sarah had referred to as Steve. There was nobody named Steve known to be associated with Sarah. It's positive both witnesses were referring to Travis. Either way, there's still no evidence that Sarah got into the truck that day. May not even be involved in her disappearance at all. And the fact that the detectives seemed to fixate on the Lambert property suggests they had evidence indicating something happened to Sarah there, but they had never spoken publicly about it. And although they do not believe Sarah's still alive, she's still considered a missing person. Her sister and father have come to terms with the fact she's almost certainly the victim of foul play, but they've never given up their search for her. Les has been extremely active in keeping Sarah's case alive and hopes one day she'll learn what happened to her little sister. Well, in 1996, she was 15 years old, 5 feet tall, and weighed 104 pounds. She should have been 19, she'd be around 40 right now. Well, when somebody disappears like that and the police don't even bother to conduct an investigation at the time, first 48 hours are the most crucial in any criminal investigation. Well, from Sarah, let's talk about Richard Keith, Call, and Cassandra Haley. Now, Cassandra had a reason to be excited on Saturday, April 9, 1988. The 18-year-old was going out that night with a fellow Christopher Newport College student named Richard Keith Call. Richard, who preferred to go by his middle name of Keith, had arranged to pick up Cassandra at her home in Grafton, Virginia, and the 20-year-old arrived right on time. He was looking forward to the night out with her. Recently broken up with his girlfriend in four years, and this would be his first date since the break-in. Well, as soon as she saw Keith pull up in front of her house at his red Toyota Celica, ran outside and climbed in the car. Then went to the movies first. Once the film was over, they headed to a party being held at the University Square Apartments. Located just a few blocks away from their college campus, the party was crowded with dozens of other Christopher Newport students. Keith and Cassandra spent a few hours at a party before leaving about 1.30 in the morning. Cassandra had a 2 a.m. curfew, and Keith planned to drop her off at the party at home and then attend another party. Although several witnesses recall seeing the couple leave the party, nobody knew where they went after that. And it's not clear how far from the apartment Keith had to park, and there's no witnesses who saw him getting into Keith's car. Only thing for certain is that neither Cassandra or Keith were ever seen again. About 7 in the morning on Sunday, Keith's father was driving on Colonial Parkway near Yorktown, Virginia, and thought he saw his, his son's red Celica parked at one of the Parkway scenic overlooks. Didn't think anything about it at the time. He had told his parents he'd be staying over at a friend's house, and they weren't expecting him home till sometime that afternoon. Well, the park ranger and routine patrol in Colonial National Park noticed the Celica about 7.30 in the morning. Still there when he made a second pass through the area at 9, so he decided to get out and make sure everything was okay. There was nobody inside the vehicle, but as the ranger peered inside, he saw the key was in the ignition and there was clothing scattered throughout the car. Well, once the investigators determined the car's owner, it didn't take them long to find out that neither Keith nor his date had been seen since leaving a party the previous evening. It led them to believe they might be dealing with more than just two people who had gone swimming and drowned. Colonial Parkway had earned a dangerous reputation for couples over the years. And it started in 1986 when two college students who had parked at an overlook were found dead in their car. 
their throats have been slit. 87, another couple was murdered along the parkway. The bodies have been thrown into the nearby James River. The truck was found abandoned in a wild wildlife refuge with the key indignation and clothing scattered around inside the car, nearly similar to how Keith's car was found. At the time of Keith and Cassandra's disappearance, both of these double homicides were still unsolved. Well, Cassandra's older sister, Terry, was a Newport News police officer, and as soon as she learned what had happened, she knew her sister wouldn't have gone swimming and wouldn't have disappeared voluntarily. Quick and drove where Keith's car was found and told Park Ranger she was certain they were dealing with a crime. Well, when the P- police searched through the abandoned Toyota, they found most of, most of Keith's clothing and some of Cassandra's and three shoes. Oddly enough, one of Cassandra's shoes was missing. It was never found. Keith's wallet and Cassandra's purse were also in the car. No blood found inside the car, and there was nothing to indicate that a struggle had taken place. And although the investigators found no signs of foul play, at the scene there was a most likely explanation for the disappearance. Overnight temperatures had been in the low to mid-40s, far too cold for anybody to consider going swimming. The detectives didn't believe the couple would have voluntarily left the car without the clothing. Large-scale search was launched the day Key's car was found. After tracking dogs seemed to pick up the couple's scent, heading down a steep 25-foot embankment to a small beach below, investigators scoured the shoreline for more than three hours, excuse me, three miles in each direction. Divers spent hours searching underwater, found nothing to indicate that Keith or Cassandra had been on that beach. State police headquarters helicopters were used to fly over the area surrounding the parkway, and they found nothing significant. Searches were sent to several small islands located in the water to comb along the shorelines while boats and divers continued to scour the river. And despite the extensive search, no clues to the couple's whereabouts or fate were ever found. Families of the missing couple didn't believe they would have stopped along Colonial Parkway for any reason. Cassandra had a 2 a.m. curfew, and she made sure she was always on time. She'd call if she was going to be a few minutes late, and they were sure she intended to come straight home after leaving the party at 1.30. Keith's family noted he usually avoided driving on the Colonial Parkway, though Lowe had become uh, somewhat stigmatized from the recent murders, and many locals were afraid to travel on it. Well, since Keith's car had been found on federal property, the FBI had primary jurisdiction over the investigation. Agents didn't believe the people, the couple had drowned. They announced that the mysterious disappearance was likely an abduction, and they'd be investigating it as such. They admitted they hadn't found any evidence to suggest the couple had been murdered, Left unsaid was their belief that a potential serial killer might be operating along the parkway. Detectives questioned whether the couple had even been in the car by the time it was abandoned at the parkway overlook. It's possible they'd met their fate when Keith was driving Cassandra home when his car was found. His wallet was still in it, and they theorized that he'd been pulled over by somebody impersonating a police officer. Maybe along Route 17 on the way to Cassandra. <coughs> Excuse me. Grafton's home. It was possible the car and belongings had been left at the overlook by the perpetrator in an effort to confuse law enforcement. Both the Haley and Call families tried to maintain optimistic and tried to remain optimistic and believe the couple would be found alive. Made missing person flyers, distributed them throughout the area, pleading for anybody with any information to call them. Reward fund uh, was started and soon reached $11,000. This brought in a few tips, but none that brought them any closer to finding Keith and Cassandra. Detectives made several appeals to the public for information. They were interested in speaking with anybody who might have seen Keith and Cassandra at any point after they left the party in early hours of Sunday morning. They'd been able to find any witnesses who saw the couples. They walked to Keith's car on the road, and they're still trying to determine if they'd been in the car when it was parked at the overlook. Unfortunately, even the offer of a financial reward uh, didn't get anyone to come forward with new information. Well, months went by, and there was little progress on the investigation. It became harder for the families to hold on to the hope that Keith and Cassandra would be found alive. But they did refuse to stop searching. Cassandra's family spent many weekends searching through a wooded area across the highway from where Keith's car had been found. And it was clear they were searching for her body, because if Cassandra was still alive, they weren't going to find her there. Another young couple went missing from the Parkway area in September 1989. Their car was found abandoned at a rest stop, and their bodies were found in a nearby wooded area a month later. And although their car was left on Interstate 64, not the Colonial Parkway, like those of the other victims, police believed that all the killings were linked, and they were most likely dealing with a serial killer. Death toll is now eight. Keith and Cassandra, though presumed dead, were the only two victims that were still missing. 
Well, detectives wanted nothing more than to identify the person responsible for the Parkway murders, but clues were elusive. They followed up on each tip that was called in, but none of them led to any significant developments in the case. But 1892, after more than two years of any park, uh, Parkway murders, investigators believed the killings were over. Detectives had never been able to determine the identity of the killer, but they speculated he might have died or been jailed for an unrelated offense. Also possible, the killings had been done by two people working together, and one of them had died or been jailed, leaving the other free but unwilling to commit such crimes alone. And the case remained open, and the investigation is still considered active, but no progress is made in the case, uh, on the case in years. Well, Keith and Cassandra remained missing. Many believe the killer dumped their bodies in the York River and never carried into the Chesapeake Bay, never to be found. And the fact the bodies were never recovered made it harder for the families to accept that they were gone. Although they've come to terms with their loss, they still hope that one day they'll be able to bring them home, give them a proper burial. They also believe there's people in the Virginia area who uh, have the information needed to solve the case, bring some measure of closure to the victims' families. Cassandra's families expressed frustration about the way the case was handled. In 2018, they noted that they felt abandoned by the FBI, the Virginia State Police, and the National Park Service. They also pointed out the fact that the three organizations seem to fight over jurisdiction and fail to share evidence with each other. They believe this is one of the main reasons why there no progress has been reported in years. Well, despite being failed by the system, they continue to hope they'll one day obtain justice for Cassandra. Keith's parents died relatively young, his father in 96 and his mother in 2001. And they were each just 60 years old. But having a missing child seems to make people age faster. Siblings continued to hope he'll one day be found as killer brought to justice, but admit the hardest part for them was watching how the tragedy affected their parents. Keith's sister is still haunted by something her brother said concerning one of his classmates who had been killed in an accident. Keith told his sister he hoped nothing like that had ever happened to him. It was the last conversation the two had before Keith disappeared. Well, Cassandra Haley was 18 when she went missing from Grafton, Virginia in April of 1988. Brown hair, brown eyes, 5 feet 7, weighed 135 pounds. Richard Keith Call was 20 years old. Blue eyes and light brown hair, and he was six feet tall and weighed 150 pounds. Neither of these were what you would consider big people. Well, we're going to talk more about missing persons in our next show. But for now, we're out of time. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly great evening.